KYW Original Podcasts. This is KYW In-Depth. I'm Charlotte Reese. Labor unions built America. That's the line we heard from Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden recently. And on the other side, President Trump is campaigning as a champion of blue-collar workers. Labor unions and politics have gone hand-in-hand in America for decades. So, how is organized labor fitting into the 2020 election? Which side will unions take? And is modern-day organized labor powerful enough to even make a difference? Dr. Laura Bucci is a political science professor at St. Joseph's University. She joins the podcast to talk about the history of unions and politics and what they mean in America today. I was excited when I found your website, too, because I have wanted to talk about labor unions. Labor unions have been around for such mm-hmm. a long time, and I think most people just think of the mid-1900s when you talk about unions in the U.S., but I'm wondering if you could give maybe a better idea of how this whole idea got started, sort of break down when and why unions became popular in the U.S., Right. So we get kind of labor unions forming with industrialization, right? We get this kind of cropping up where they take this kind of real stronghold is in the post-war era. So the kind of era you're thinking of, that's when unions are at their height in membership. And so that's kind of in the 50s. Post-70s, kind of later part of the 70s, the period I'm interested in, you start seeing this decline in membership, particularly in the private sector, while you're also seeing kind of an increase in public sector union membership. So folks like like teachers or state employees or city employees unionizing. Um, prior to that, it was mostly industrial workers or trade workers, right? So we get kind of older unions forming from that. You can think of the kind of stereotypical image a lot of people have is is someone working on a shop floor in a factory, right? That's the kind of uh, 1950s era image that you tend to picture, but it's it's broader than that. But that's kind of a decent bit of what 1950s unionism would sort of look like. Mm-hmm. And you talked about kind of the peak of union power in the U.S. And uh, can you kind of compare where we are now compared to then? Right, so power is a is a tricky concept, but but um, because you might do more with less, right? That that's the, you know, you might not have as many members, but you might be stronger in different ways. But membership was at its height. But most unions derive a lot of their money from membership, right? So you collect dues, you pool the dues, and then you use those dues to do something for members or publicly, right? That primarily members, And so that was at its height in the 1950s because there was this larger membership base. Over time, currently, union membership is around 10%, right? It's it's much less than it used to be. And it's declined significantly sort of over that period, particularly in the private sector. Private sector unionization rates is somewhere, I think, around 6%. But public is a bit higher. But again, it's going to vary substantially by state. So Pennsylvania is going to look a lot different than Florida, for example. Right, Florida adopts right to work really early on. Pennsylvania doesn't have right to work now. Uh, so the transition here is going to come as kind of steel goes away, as sort of other unionized workplaces sort of shut down. Mm-hmm. Right. And just briefly, right to work. Right to work essentially is that 
workers themselves can't be sort of compelled to join a union, mm-hmm. which existing labor law would say that uh, you are required to represent someone even if they have not paid dues into the system. Um, but right to work also says that you're not required to join a union at all, um, even if you are extracting benefits mm. sort of out, and that states have the right to kind of encourage this sort Mm -hmm. of behavior. What it does is it makes union organizing a lot harder Mm. um, because there's there's a lot of really short-term benefits that people tend to think and employers tend to really emphasize Mm -hmm. in not joining a union, right? It's going to save you $10 on your paycheck, $100 on your paycheck. And so people people can be really lulled into that kind of narrative. Mm. And in the long run, we know that unions tend to lead to higher pay kind of across the income spectrum, right? So low education, low income jobs, still higher pay, uh, all kinds of sectors, still higher pay across racial divides, still higher pay. But that kind of messaging is not going to come across as, um, as people are trying to encourage you not to unionize. Mm -hmm. So right to work really makes it harder for unions to recruit in, um, and sort of maintain memberships. It becomes easier kind of institutionally to break those unions down um, in smaller membership and with smaller membership and more to do less dues to do it with. Right. So you've got this problem of, of trying to get more done with less money and more people. Right. Some of them aren't identified within the labor union at all. Yeah. I, I, and I like how you um, pointed out that every state is kind of different and, and to the word power doesn't always mean the same thing when you're talking about unions. Yeah, I mean, I think the question is, is labor's traditional power has been in its membership, right? That's the the story that is most common in labor studies. That's the um, the kind of your ability to, if you're talking politics, to get people to vote, to get people to turn out to vote, to be able to like phone bank or ask door to door or do all of the kind of things that require a ton of people to do any of the go TV stuff. This is where unions are really great, right? Because they'll bring members to do stuff. So membership has been this kind of strategic resource as membership goes away. You have other resources, right? You can use ideas sort of strategically. You can put policy together. You can donate money to campaigns or candidates but that's those are all different kind of entry points, and they're not the same sort of post-war strategy, mm-hmm. which was that we're going to teach our membership kind of about politics or how how certain politics are going to affect them, and that's both going to affect how they vote and also affect what they do for other campaigns, right? So either they're going to go out and register people, or they're going to talk to their family and bring their families, or they're going to kind of do some uh, planned event, right? So they'll phone bank with us and we'll all do it together and it'll be like a thing we do. Mm-hmm. See, and too, um, I like how you're bringing up the election connection because I think too, um, when a lot of people think about labor unions, they think of the movies. So, you know, I'm picturing people outside of the polls, you know, the mobsters getting yeah. ready to beat people up. I mean, you know, is there truth to that? Like, what what is the true connection between unions? There's this association between kind of powerful players, right, that 
that individual cities, right, if you're going to associate Philadelphia, right, there is the connection between other powerful players, right, that this is not that unusual. But I would kind of also make the argument that, like, labor is not the only group to associate kind of with less than perfect people, right? Plenty of other groups associate with less than perfect partners. And I would also say that that kind of connection was maybe a little overblown. It's not necessarily, everything is not, what's that movie with Robert De Niro, the the recent one, The Irishman, right? Like everything is not that, but there is some truth in that. Um, Particularly if we think of machine politics, right? That there's an effort to sort of make change and a lot of groups have interest in that right so you're kind of trying to take power from existing kind of moneyed players right and that's going to appeal to a lot of groups of people people labor being one of them right that if you want to kind of upend establishments that'd be a way to do it right and as you say right like some unions are more powerful or influential than others Can you maybe break down the landscape of where we are right now? Like, what's a good example of a powerful union and what makes them influential? I think size is going to matter here, but I also think, and so you're going to think of, you know, some some unions are are bigger, right? They're just like, the AFT is, is a big union, right? And that, like, there's a power in just simply having a lot of members who can do stuff. But if we... We might also think about kind of militancy, right, that some unions are really good at kind of advocating for policy or at kind of pushing politics in a direction that is beneficial to workers in general, but to their workers also. Right. So if we think of nurses, right, the nurses have done a really nice job during the COVID situation, but also in the kind of Medicare for all sort of push, right? They've done a lot of kind of advocacy work, knowing what they know occupationally, but also having the protection of their union to be able to say it. There are other unions here too, right? So the traditional divide has been sort of trades and private sector industrial unions and public sector unions, right? That there's some distinction politically between what those do. But I think the two main divisions is size and then how militant is that union? How willing are they to strike? And then how willing are they to advocate for broader social or economic policies right outside of their individual contracts? Mm. That's maybe three things, not two. Size, your willingness to kind of strike or to do sort of direct actions Mm. and your kind of internal or externalness, right? That how, how likely are you to say this is for all workers versus this is for us as workers and plenty of sort of union contracts end up, you're primarily focused on your membership, right? But a lot of unions see that call more broadly, right? You tend to think about workers as a, as a class of people rather than just my colleagues, Mm -hmm. Right. And so you're saying like, look, this would be good for us personally, but it would also be good for everyone. Right. So this is the kind of conversation around healthcare, right. That, that a lot of unions have had where it's like, look, we bargained for a really good contract. It has really good health insurance, but it would be better if everyone had really good health insurance. (laughs) And so this is a kind of broader overarching thing. Like we could stop bargaining for our health insurance because everyone would just have it and it'd be a thing we could stop doing. True. <laughs> you know, I think about um, 
to how you brought up the the teachers union and when the president of the teachers union said okay fine you know when schools and covid and you know at the height of that they said fine then we're going to tell our teachers to strike if they want to and that and that was that and it was kind of like whoa so i mean and this has been yeah. this has been a real way in which teachers have gotten some of the protective gear that they really need to do their job right that without this in a lot of, particularly Southern states, but it's not necessarily just Southern, um, that push is hard. And, you know, you can leave your job, but you've left your paycheck and it's a recession, right? That There's no jobs, right? Yeah. So you're going to step away from your job because you're worried that it's going to make you sick. You're going to forego all of your income. And there's kind of no collectiveness to this, right? That it's you making an individual decision that is very bad. Like all sides of this are bad. You go to work, it's bad. You don't go to work, it's bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the goal here would be for for the unions to particularly say, like, this is not safe. And if you can't put this together for us, none of us are coming, mm-hmm. right? And that kind of keeps you your job protections, but it also kind of forces health and safety concerns to be met. Mm-hmm. And so it's this push that you can do with some job security that you can't necessarily do without it, right? That this kind of ability to try to pick off one worker at a time and say like, look, well, I like got you a mask mm-hmm. and you'd be like, I guess I have a mask. Meanwhile, all of your colleagues don't is possible. Right. And that's something that a lot of employers will tend to do, right. That you'll kind of have one-on-one conversations with individual workers. And in those conversations, everything seems reasonable, but Mm -hmm. systemically you end up with these patterns that don't necessarily make sense. Right. It's just like, Oh, well you'll, you'll be fine. And then no one is, but no one knows that no one else is Right. right. Because there's not, that cross communication. Right. So, so what are like, you know, you talked about how union numbers are going down and I mean, what are some of the disadvantages then? Like what's happening and why is union participation a lot less common, I guess, maybe in the U S there's a few reasons, right? So the first reason is industrial shift. You don't have as many sort of large scale factories anymore. You don't have like coal in the same capacity. You don't have steel in the same capacity, right? All automaking, right? All unionized industries that use a lot more automation than they ever have. And so require fewer people to work for them, right? That's kind of a big industrial shift. That's, there's not a real cause to that, right? It's kind of technological change. The other is that this has been a strategic move from companies to relocate to places a lot of them within the U.S., but some of them abroad. The the narrative tends to be we relocate abroad, but a lot of those relocations have been within the U.S. Mm-hmm. to places that don't have unions to contend with, right? So if you take Boeing, for example, and you move Boeing from Seattle to South Carolina, you get a new workforce, right? You get new people to work at those jobs, but you also go from a state with fairly substantial and strong labor unions to a state with very weak and historically weak labor unions, right? So you get this shift. Were there other decisions in that call? Probably, right? The state of South Carolina probably offered concessions and and tax reductions and land, you know, all of these things that states love to do. But it also comes with this added benefit 
that now workers are not as organized as they once were. And then the last bit is that there's been a lot of institutional barriers to unionization, right? There's been a lot of ways that unions have been broken, kind of just based on what's kind of permissible, right? So for example, this sounds like a very small detail, but it's probably going to have a big response. So something like there's a checkbox if you want to um, join the union. And it used to be that you were automatically enrolled unless you opted out, right? You had to opt out. That changed and then you had to opt in in some cases, which means that people aren't going to do it. Why? Because there's a lot of information and they're required to meet with employers, but they're not necessarily always required to meet with the union in terms of what information they're provided. There's also a ton, Alex Hertel Fernandez has a really excellent book on this called Politics of Work. Communication lines aren't even, right? So as unions lose membership elsewhere, they're less able to communicate broader ideas about what workers should do, like what is normal employer behavior. And so we kind of tend to not know and assume everything is sort of going okay. It's the same thing that happens when you get your first job contract and you don't really question the pay in it, right? And then you find out years later that you've been making a lot less and you have been making less for the last 15 years, but you haven't asked anyone about it. Why? Because you didn't know to ask, right? It wasn't a thing you were thinking about. You're like, thank God I have this job. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, but this is everyone, right? And so it's this moment of like, without like without connection to other people at a more kind of higher level than just you you put all of the burden for knowing something is wrong on an individual mm-hmm. who are stressed out and scared and busy and there's no jobs and they're nervous and you you kind of remove all of the burden from the employer who has all of this information right they know they're paying you less mm-hmm. right and so it's this moment of oh how do I kind of monopolize information? And so a lot of the the contract fights in the labor movement are more thinking about how do we kind of open up that discussion? How do we make it more transparent to kind of reduce the information asymmetry, right? That how do we get individual workers to know that there is some security in what they're being, they're contracting to do? Right. So what what are the political consequences then of unions being smaller and maybe less of the voting population than a few decades ago? Like, how are the unions being used maybe specifically to in the 2020 election? It's complicated, but I think um, traditionally unions have done a lot of work and still do a ton of work in policy. Right. So they tend to advocate for broader more economically liberal, but you can sort of left-ish, not leftist, leftish policy, right? That it tends to be sort of bigger welfare state stuff, higher social safety net. So things like higher minimum wage laws or uh, sort of more job protections, those kinds of policies tend to be something that unions have advocated for over time. As unions decline in membership, there becomes this tricky bit of trying to prove to parties that you're relevant, right? You're a relevant social block and 10% of a population is not irrelevant, right? That's not a, a group that we would say is too small to matter. So you're, but you're trying to demonstrate that you have some sway and that your influence should really matter. For the Democrats, they've traditionally kind of been the home of organized labor. That's where they've lived. 
Of course, there's going to be some Republican members of unions, right? That's that's how unions work. They're individual people, some of whom are Republicans. But strategically, most unions have sort of been firmly under the left, kind of the Democratic tent. But that tent has like people vied for space within it. A lot of politicians, Democratic politicians will pay sort of lip service. And we saw this at the Democratic debates to organize labor, right? That you know, my, my father was a union, whatever my, um, we wouldn't have been good without sort of the growth of organized labor, et cetera, et cetera. But then there becomes a real question about what are you going to do policy wise to sort of make that happen. And so for some unions, it's been this tension between how much effort do you put in a presidential election or in state and local elections? And how much do you put to sort of bigger policy goals or individual regulatory fights or kind of organizing down ballot, right? Do you want to do something at the state and local level? And there's a ton of variation here, right? That, that there's, there is a big effort to kind of get out the vote. There's a big effort to donate money because this scene is really mattering. But the strategy of that for each individual union is going to be slightly different. They're not all going to phone bank at the same time, right? That would be ridiculous and kind of a waste of resources anyway. So they're they're putting money in some places, they're putting people in others, there'll be people working the polls, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And I'm thinking about how Trump and Biden were talking to the voters in their different speeches and kind of leveraging the unions again. And I mean, both sides. I mean, like, what are the similarities? Do you see similarities between how Trump has brought in voters compared to Republican leaders in the past? Or like, what is the purpose of this right now, them both kind of calling out to the unions? I think for Trump, it's primarily a rhetorical strategy, right? That we see kind of this big push for the Trump administration to kind of put really active anti-labor folks in positions of significant power, right? The Republican convention didn't use any union contracts, to my knowledge. It's this moment where Republican policy has been sort of distinctly anti-union for a long period of time. And that hasn't changed under Trump, but he is pretty good at kind of mentioning people that he thinks might be relevant for the election come November. And the idea of a union worker living in the suburbs is something that he seems to really like rhetorically. But to say that Trump sort of supports unionism isn't like that's a big stretch. So he might support individual workers or support the idea of individual workers, but the appointment strategy, the policy strategy hasn't really demonstrated that in any meaningful way. It's been a goal of his to use that narrative to his benefit. Kind of as a last question to bring everything full circle. I mean, you know, we've talked about unions and when they were at their peak and uh, politics, all of that. What kind of role do you think will unions play in this presidential election? Do you think, you know, the way unions could vote could kind of have a significant impact? Or do you think, you know, there's any kind of swaying power to the unions in 2020? I think there's this moment that's really actually kind of, it's incredibly interesting, right, from a, from someone who studies this kind of behavior, right, that 
we're in a moment where there's an economic crisis, where there's a, a medical crisis, where um, the West Coast is on fire, and there's like uh, you know all of this sort of natural disaster damage, and we have people going into work knowing that it's dangerous for them to be there. And I think that there's this moment where kind of a lot of culturally, a lot of ordinary people are recognizing that this is messed up, right? In a, in a real kind of deep way. You're just like, why are we doing this? And so you have this kind of moment at hand where people are willing to accept narratives that say something like, this isn't right, right? Like a teacher shouldn't have to die at, the, at their job, right? That that's not a reasonable thing to ask someone to do for $30,000 a year or whatever. It's not a reasonable thing to ask someone to do for $100,000 a year. But and so there's this distinction here. And so I think there's this moment for organized labor to really kind of make significant policy change, whether that change comes through um, sort of electing a candidate or electing candidates or towards kind of pushing for for certain policies or certain workplace protections or bigger legal changes, this is kind of a moment where that seems like a possibility in a way that it didn't, this wasn't the conversation five years ago where you wouldn't say something like, look, people deserve to be paid more and to not fear at their jobs, right? That wasn't necessarily a thing we always considered. Um, and we're thinking a lot more about work in a way that we haven't really for a long time. And so if if the goal is to kind of change systemic conditions and to make people's work life a little bit better, this might be a moment where everything else is in flux too. And so it might seem like an idea thing we could do. And people would be like, okay, well, it's kind of whatever. I've been out of work for however long now. So that sounds good to me, right? Or, and so you can get these kind of expansions in a welfare state that we might want. And, when, and we historically know that once we expand things, they don't really contract in quite the same way because people tend to like, they like the expansion, right? The extension of the $600 uh, unemployment, right? That little bit of extra. People liked that because it made their life a little bit easier at a very difficult time. Mm -hmm. Right. And so take that away and people are like, Oh, but, but I liked it. <laughs> right. And so it's this kind of growth and a, a push to keep that growth steady. Yeah. I like when you said working conditions, I think um, we started talking about the mid 1900s and those strikes were about working conditions. So if we think of West Virginia or something like that, right, you pick any industrialized workplace. We think of coal mines. The reason that you get significant unionism there a lot of the time was that people were living horrible, dangerous work lives, right? People were dying. That death was like a very real possibility. And the history of sort of coal in the United States is one in which people knew that things were very dangerous. Individual workers sort of knew, but their bosses certainly knew and did nothing to protect them. And then people died. And so it becomes this moment of like, you're really just going to send me down there knowing I might die. Um, and so it was like, well, we're going to try to reduce sort of asymmetries in information. We're going to try to at least make sure that people's families are compensated for that death. 
right? So we're going to kind of bargain these things into the contract. So at least if you're doing that job, that's very risky, you know, Mm. right? Because otherwise there's a complete incentive to say like, no, totally safe. Don't worry about it. Just, we're not even going to pay you. Just go down there. It's fine. And then you're like, okay, guess I'll do this. And then, cause you're like, I have to eat. Um, and so then you, uh, then all these lung conditions happen then all this other stuff happens. And you're like, I wasn't told about any of this. Yeah. Right. And I've heard stories about this sort of currently, right. That, you know, you were asked to remove asbestos, which is illegal, right? That you need an actual team to do this. And your boss is like, don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, the results of that aren't going to show up for another 30 years. So at that point, he'll be long gone and you'll be sick. So how do you balance concerns? That's it for this episode of KYW In-Depth. You can listen and subscribe to the podcast on the Radio.com app or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Charlotte Reese, and we'll have another episode out soon.